Good morning, everyone. Glad you could be with us uh, on this cold January morning for you watching online and uh, in your nice cozy home. Good morning there and down in F3 as well. Glad you're joining us. Um, we're studying through the book of Acts, and uh, so I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me or your, your electronic uh, version of it to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now, before we get uh, into our passage this morning, let me just reemphasize again our focus on building bridges, um, opportunities to pray and um, also learn how and trust the Lord to share the good news with uh, family members or neighbors or coworkers. Um, it's, a, it's a very significant uh, focus that we're doing kind of in conjunction with the book of Acts because that's what the early believers were doing as well. Now, Scott Santmeyer, our pastor of local outreach, um, has, uh, has painted a really neat picture of um, what's called Deer Rapids Bridge. It's down in Shenandoah County. And on those sermon stands as you walked in, uh, you get this, uh, today was, um, as Mike mentioned, this card, and for those of you downstairs and F3 as well, uh, each week, uh, the, the one side of that card is a, is a puzzle piece. It's, uh, there, there's going to be 15 different uh, pieces of this uh, painting that Scott has done of Deer Rapids Bridge. So you collect each piece, and on the, on the other side of it tells you some things you can do and, and read and also prepare for. But if you collect each piece of this puzzle, um, you'll get uh, um, a print of Scott's painting. He's very artistic, really, really gifted guy. And you'll be entered into a drawing where someone is going to receive the actual original uh, painting that Scott has done. And I, I was so inspired by that, I thought, how neat is that? You know, I could do that. Um, that if you listen to all 15 sermons over the next week, um, I can give you something. <clears throat> so, there you go. Um, inspiration comes in all different shapes and sizes, doesn't it? And, uh, and join us as well for prayer in between services uh, each week as well. Let me, let me pray and ask the Lord to give us some wisdom in his book of Acts. Father, thank you for this time, direct us in your word, and may your Holy Spirit instruct us in the way that we should go. In Christ's name, amen. I'm sure you all have heard the phrase, going against the grain. Um, kind of, uh, you're doing your own thing, you're, you're, um, you're going against the norms of life, going against the grain. Um, like, literally, it, in planing wood, the, the idea of that's where it came from, going against the grain, which means you get maybe more splinters and it's kind of a rough, uh, it's a rough uh, work that you're doing, going against the grain. 1607, a little, little bit of a trivia, Shakespeare was the first to use that, that phrase idiomatically, um, which 400 some years later we still use, going against the grain. Hey, there's someone who is who's uh, kind of doing something different than what the crowd is doing. Galileo was a guy who went against the grain. He said uh, the earth revolved around the sun, and no one wanted to believe that. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church, I think, put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. Rosa Parks, 1955, she went against the grain. 
when she sat in a seat that Jim Crow law said she couldn't sit. And um, it began to make a big impact in our society, going against the grain. Well, we're going to look at the life of, uh, of one man in the New Testament who went against the grain, and it cost him his life. It was Stephen. And I think Stephen, as we'll see, I hope, uh, is probably one of the most impactful people in, in the Scriptures. He was a man who literally changed this world, as we'll see. Acts chapter 6. Um, what I want to do, it's a, it's, this is a, a big passage this morning, because we're going to go into finish chapter 6, go into all of chapter 7, and actually get a little bit into chapter 8. So, um, can you hang on here till like maybe 11, and we'll hold the people out in the parking lot for the next service. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I want to talk about his, his ministry and his message and his martyrdom. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of, the, of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now we were introduced last week when Caleb preached the previous passage to Stephen as a man, in verse 5 it says, who was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And here it says he was full of grace, God's grace, and he was full of God's power. And it says he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Not only was he assisting in the, the distribution of the food to Hellenistic widows, the problem that was being addressed in the early church, something had to happen. And Stephen was one of these uh, deacons that was selected to assist the widows in the distribution of the food. But, man, he was doing a lot more than that. Signs and wonders and full of grace and power. God was using Stephen mightily. But verse 9 says, Some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including Cyrenians and Alexandrians, but also some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. So there's, there's um, in fact, archaeology has proven this, but there was uh, various synagogues throughout Jerusalem. One was called here the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Probably these were um, um, Jewish people, Hellenistic Jewish people, Greek-speaking Jewish people, who had previously been slaved, enslaved in Rome, which was not uncommon. Rome had whole sorts of slaves. Or maybe their family members had been slaves. But this was a synagogue where these Hellenistic Jews, these, these former slaves, were gathering. The synagogue of the freedmen. And it says there in verse 9, they rose up and they were arguing with Stephen. But verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. I would have loved to have been a fly on the, on the wall in this place. Because here's Stephen and he's reasoning with them that and we don't know for sure, but we'll see in just a moment. We've got a pretty good idea what he was saying. And there was some debating going on, arguing. There was, there's bantering. There was debating going on in that synagogue over some key issues. And what were, they, um, what were they doing? Verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And it says they stirred up, verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body of Jewish officials. 
They stirred up the people. First time that that's happened. If you recall, if you've been in our study of the book of Acts, um, the religious leaders have been stirred up, but the, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, the, the early believers and followers of, of Christ, had favor with the people. So the religious leaders couldn't do a whole lot to them because uh, they were afraid of the people, because the people liked Peter, James, and John. They were um, being drawn to what they were saying. But something was different with Stephen. And it says, they stirred up the people, and they dragged him before the council. Verse 13 says, and they put false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place, the temple, the, the dwelling of God. See, he's speaking against God, the presence of God, the temple, and against the law, against Moses and the law. And those are fighting words to the Jews. That was their identity. Their identity was wrapped up in the temple. That was their, that, no other nation, no other people had, the, had a temple where the presence of, of the one true God dwelt. That was the throne room of God, the temple. And, um, and the Mosaic Law, boy, you don't mess with the Mosaic Law. That was their identity as a Jewish people. And it says they, they brought up these false witnesses, not that they were um, saying things that weren't necessarily true about Stephen. Uh, they were twisting the things that Stephen was saying. It says in verse 14, For we've heard him say that this, this Nazarene, this Jesus, will destroy this place, the, the temple, and will alter the customs which Moses handed down to us, the law. What, 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 was, what was Stephen saying? What was going on? What was the argument about this, this debating going on in the synagogue of the freedmen? He's, he's talking against the law. He's talking against this place, the temple. What in the world was Stephen saying? I think we can piece the, the pieces together and kind of get a pretty good idea of what he was saying. You know, just a few months before this whole incident happened, uh, Jesus, the day that Jesus was crucified, what happened in the temple? You remember? The day Jesus crucified, this, this curtain, this, this veil that separated the, the holy place from the, the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, was what? It was ripped in two, right? From top to bottom. And God was showing that there was free access to him. That the veil was ripped in two. Jesus Christ had paid for our sins. He was the ultimate sacrifice that was made. No more do you need to bring your lambs your, your blood sacrifices. Jesus Christ had made the ultimate payment for sin. The veil was rent in two. We have access to the Father simply by his grace through faith. That's what Stephen was preaching. That's what Stephen was, was saying. And um, this, uh, this place of the temple is, is no longer needed. These sacrificial systems, it's over. We've got Jesus' blood. You can't improve on that. This system is done. The Mosaic Law, all those rituals, all that, it's, it, Jesus has fulfilled it. In fact, I'm sure he quoted from Jesus, who said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. Jesus said, destroy this 
three days I'm going to build it up again. He's talking about his body, but it's referring also to the fact that this system of Judaism, the law, was over. Now this was radical. Those were fighting words. To have this understanding, this new, this idea that the Old Testament was over, the new dispensation of grace had begun, Stephen got it. He was connecting the dots. And by the way, where were the, where were the disciples? The, where was Peter, James, and John in, in all of this? Where, where were they at? Did they run to his rescue? Did they come and help argue with Stephen? They are conspicuously absent. Why? Because they hadn't gotten it yet. They weren't connecting the dots like Stephen had connected the dots. I'm sure they viewed Stephen almost as an embarrassment. Good night. What is he saying over there? What do you mean that the, the, the law is done? What, what, what do you mean this, the temple is done? These were good Jewish boys, Peter, James, and John. They were going to the temple. They were meeting, it says, in the temple and house to house. They were all about Judaism, the fulfillment of the promises for Israel. And now this this. This Hellenistic Jew comes, this, this Stephen, and he says, it's over. The veil's been torn. The time of the old law period is over. We're, something new is happening. And he said, it's all because of Jesus. We've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down. Well, they were... They were pretty much right of what Stephen had said. Now, it says in verse um, 16, or 15, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. He's, he's been dragged before this, this elite group of, of, of Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the 71 rulers of Judaism with all their, their fancy uh, garments and their pious, self-righteous looks on their face. And they're looking at this guy, and what do they see? It says they see a, a man standing there that had a face like the face of an angel. Now, I have no idea what that would look like other than when I look at my 10 grandkids. The face of an angel. I don't know. But they, they saw something about Stephen. You know, when Moses, in the Old Testament, when Moses had gone up to the mountain, they got the, he got the, the Ten Commandments, and when he came down, his face glowed because of the presence of God. Whatever they saw, they saw a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of faith, full of wisdom, full of power. A face like the face of an angel. He'd walk with Jesus. And it says then in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest then said to him, are these things so? Is this what you're saying? Is this what you're teaching, Stephen? Is this so? And that's when he begins his message. Now what I'm going to do, it's the whole of chapter 7. And I'm going to read it, and you follow along. But we get to read this morning what this man, Stephen, shared 2,000 years ago before the, this elite group of Jewish pious leaders. 
I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, and it says, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And from there, after his father died, God had him move to his, this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him a covenant, the covenant of circumcision, so that Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Verse 9, now the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all the afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. And now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with them. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And was then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him. 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, till there was another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he, nurtured, and he was nurtured three months in his father's house and after that he had been set outside. Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and word and deed. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being mistreated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace. And he said, men, your brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away and said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You did not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien, an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight 
And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I've heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom you disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler or judge? This Moses is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the land of the Red Sea and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. But our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but we repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will be, go before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has happened to him. And at that time they made a calf, they brought a sacrifice to an idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? And you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Ramtha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. And our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And David found favor in God's side and asked that he might Find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what, what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Um, let's stop for a moment. There are, in this, in this message of Stephen, as you can see, he's, he's focused around some key individuals, right? Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and here at the end, this, this temple, this, the tabernacle and this temple. Um, now, what I think Stephen has done, I'm going to just summarize this. Uh, he, he, he is woven into his message are three key points that he has been talking about. Three key things that, that come up. God's people will always rebel, have always rebelled. Yet God's grace and mercy have always been evident. And God's Messiah was always promised. 
These things, this message is what I think forms the, 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 the heart and soul of, uh, of Stephen's message. So, for instance, back in the, the first part when he talked about Abraham, he talked about um, taking Abraham out of the land of Ur, sending him to a land that I'm going to show you. Did Abraham obey God? Well, not completely, because Abraham didn't go to the land that God showed him. He went to Haran. He said, leave your relatives. Did he do that? No, he took his family with him. He took his father with him. Goes up to Haran, and that's where his father, he waited. He settled in Haran, it says. In other words, I think what Stephen is saying, from the very beginning, uh, this, this chosen people, even from their very father, their founding father, there has been rebellion, disobedience. And yet, God has always been faithful. He brought him into the land, even though he gave him no inheritance in the land. And he gave him the promise of an ultimate seed. An ultimate seed would come. Um, verse 5, he gave him no inheritance, not even a foot, but he promised that he would give to him a possession and to his descendants after him. There was this woven into this message, rebellion of the people of Abraham. It had God's faithfulness and, and mercy still was evident. And there was still the promise the Joseph story. In the Joseph story, we see that um, uh, verse 8, he gave him the covenant of circumcision, this Abraham who became the father of Isaac and, and then the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. But what did the patriarchs do? They became jealous of Joseph. Once again, there was a sin. There was this rebellion in the heart of the, of the Jewish patriarchs. Um, the 12 tribes that came from, the, the patriarchs out of which came the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet, in spite of their rebellion, these sinful patriarchs, God was still faithful. He was still gracious. Joseph went down, sold into slavery, into bondage in Egypt, became the governor of Egypt, and Jacob sent his sons down there to get grain. All ahead of him, because God was gracious and merciful, he prepared for that. And those people were saved. The, the promise of the, of the Messiah, I think, is evident in the very person of Joseph himself. The Jewish people would have seen Joseph as a, as a messianic figure. He was um, cast off by his brethren, and it saved by, the, uh, by, by, by him as well. In the, the first appearing of Joseph, they didn't recognize him in that story. But when he came, it says a second time, oh, he revealed himself to them. The Messiah, he came the first time. And Stephen is implying in this first coming, he walked among us. He was there. He was the Messiah, but you recognized him not. You crucified him. But he's coming a second time, and the second time, you'll recognize him. Because the prophets of old, Zechariah, had foretold that. So again, woven into these stories, the rebellion of the people, the kindness of God, and the promise of Messiah. The uh, Moses story, very similar. Um, the people, again, with the sinfulness of people, yet the, the grace of God evident over and over and over again. They rebelled against Moses. Who made you a judge or ruler over us? They repudiated him. And then, as it says in verse 37, Mo, um, Moses said, God is going to raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. The promise of a coming Messiah, the coming holy and righteous one. Again, woven within the Moses story over and over again is this theme of you're 
The people are sinful. God is gracious, and he's never forgotten his promise of the Messiah. And then that last story, the, the, or the focus on the tabernacle and the temple, again, God graciously, mercifully provided a place that he would meet with the people, the people who needed him, his presence because they were sinful, they were rebellious. He provided this temple, this place of dwelling for um, his glory. And yet what, the Jew, what did the Jewish people do with it? Instead of celebrating the God of the temple, they celebrated the temple. They made it an idol. So again, verse 48 and 49, we read this. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? He, um, Stephen is quoting from Isaiah 66. The prophet Isaiah said that. You, you, you've made this an idol. The, this temple. You, I don't dwell in a temple made with human hands. In fact, the very next phrase, Stephen doesn't get to it. The very next phrase in that Isaiah passage says this. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. This is the one I enter into a real relationship with. This is the one that I worship with, that I invite their worship. One who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. What were the Jewish people doing? With all their pomp and, and, and pageantry, with all their, their self-righteous uh, Jewishness, the temple that they took pride in, And what had Stephen been saying in the arguing in the synagogue of the freedmen? A relationship with God has nothing to do with this place. He has entered into a personal relationship with us through his son Jesus, who died on the cross and he paid the penalty of our sin and he rose again. I've seen him. I think Stephen was part of that. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, it says that. Uh, he appeared to 500 people at one time. I think Stephen was there. He'd seen Jesus. And he's telling the Jewish leaders, the, 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 the leadership of Judaism in the Sanhedrin, you know nothing about God in his heart. And how does he conclude this, uh, this message with this condemnation? Look at verse 54. Or verse 51. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the, of the Messiah, the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Wow. Can you imagine being in that setting? Every important person of Judaism was there fixing their gaze upon this man who had a face like the face of an angel because he was so enamored with Jesus Christ and filled with the Spirit of God, with boldness, with faith, with power. He presented this truth, walked them through their history. You've rebelled. God is gracious. 
and he's never forgotten his promise of the Messiah. And what did you do with the Jewish people? You murdered him. You crucified him. You repudiated the law. You walked away from God. That's where Stephen went. Powerful. Well, the response of the religious leaders is as expected. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. I mean, again, I, I just almost see demonic. I mean, they just, that was it. And they begin to scream. They begin to, to, to uh, just go into all sorts of contortions of, of rage. But Stephen, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. He saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in the midst of this scene of demonic, I think, hatred, Stephen's eyes, as they always were, were focused on heaven, on Jesus. And what does he see? What does the text say? He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In all the other messages like Peter had preached, he had always emphasized that Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and is seated, seated at the right hand of God. And what does Stephen see? He sees Stephen, Jesus standing. Why was Jesus standing? Because of what was about to take place. He said in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man, the only person in the Bible who referred to Jesus as a Son of Man other than Jesus himself. <laughs> The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That was it. They cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Where was Saul from? It was Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a key city in the region of Cilicia. Back in chapter 8, we read it, in the synagogue of the freedmen. Who was arguing with Stephen? Who was debating him? The people of Cyrene and the Alexandrians and, and those from Cilicia. Oh, Saul was there. Saul had it up to here with Stephen. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. We've seen three trials in the book of Acts so far. Three trials before this council, this, these Sanhedrins. The first one led to the leaders just giving Peter and John and James a threat. The second trial, they actually imprisoned him, but the angel miraculously let him escape. But in this third trial, they bring death, and Stephen died. Who was this Stephen? He was the man 
who influenced and changed the world. Say, well, wait a minute, how, how can he say that? He's the first Christian martyr of 2,000 years of martyrdom, He's the, but, but he died. I mean, his life was snuffed out all too soon. Chapter 7 of Acts, we're just getting into Acts, and, he, and he's dead. It's, he's gone. What do you mean? He's the man who changed the world. There was a second century church father, Tertullian, who once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, a martyr's willing sacrifice of their life is what forms the beginning of the conversion, the, the growth of the church. It's the blood of the martyrs that brings the, the, the seeding and the spread and the growth of the church. You see, that young Pharisee, that Saul of Tarsus who argued with Stephen in the synagogue, who stood there, that Saul, as you know, as we'll see in chapter 9, became the great Apostle Paul. Uh, the great missionary, the great Apostle Paul. Paul had been, Saul had been a, a student, as he'll tell us later, of Gamaliel. It was Gamaliel in an earlier passage that we read, said, hey, do these men no harm. If this is a work of God, then we can't stand again. It's, if it's a work of men, it'll just, it, we won't have to worry about it. Do them no harm. But his young student, Saul, did not listen to Gamaliel. He was all, it says in chapter 8, verse 1, in hearty agreement with putting him to death. But this Saul was converted on the road to Damascus on his way to kill Christians. And I think it was Stephen who was the real teacher and influencer of the Apostle Paul whom God used to change the world. It was Stephen who argued brilliantly that the period of the law was over. And it was the Apostle Paul who would later write, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. It was Stephen who stood his ground, full of the Holy Spirit, and said the te temple sacrifices is over. The veil has been rent in two. It was the Apostle Paul who would later write, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It was Stephen who boldly proclaimed that the need of the temple and this place is no longer. It's over. There's not one place that we meet God. And it was Paul who would later write, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? It was Stephen that I think Paul looked back on. The one that he had argued with, the temple of the freedmen. The wisdom of which he could not cope with. He could not withstand the arguments of Stephen. That when Paul became the great apostle Paul, it was Stephen's message, it was Stephen's teaching that had so impacted his life. That's where he went back to. It was the thought and the words, it was the memory of this Stephen 
And again, let me say, where was Peter, James, and John when he stood in the synagogue of the freedmen to argue? Where was Peter, James, and John when he stood in the Sanhedrin and they dragged him out and they were throwing the stones and smashing his body? Where were they? They were nowhere to be found. Why? Because they hadn't connected the dots yet. They were good Jewish boys who were expecting in their Judaistic way of thinking that it was all about Israel. And Stephen got it. And I think he was an embarrassment to them, and they were nowhere to be found. It didn't happen overnight, Stephen's influence on the Apostle Paul, as we see there in the, those opening verses of chapter 8. He was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, even except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and put them in prison. The, the book of Acts changes from here on out. Nothing will ever be the same again because of Stephen. And again, some people would say, and probably, they probably said it in, that, uh, um, in this time of Stephen, oh, what a tragic waste Stephen was just, he was the rising, I mean, he was performing miracles. He was, he was, he was making a, a scene like no one else was. Oh, what a tragic loss. But like Joseph had said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had other plans. And again, God used Stephen in his death, to eventually impact Paul and tens and thousands and millions and millions and millions of lives are changed, even to this day. I don't think there's anyone who has influenced the world more than that first martyr, Stephen. Because of his understanding of Jesus. What does Stephen's life teach us today? Well, let me put it this way. I think his life teaches us that God's people who are filled with the Holy Spirit live with power and boldness for Jesus and then die in joy and confident peace knowing they're going to be with Jesus. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit have power and boldness in life. They have joy and confidence in death. And they have the hope of eternal reward in heaven. The same Apostle Paul would later write in 2 Timothy at the end of his life. If we have died with him, we will live with him. And if we endure, we will reign with him. And when that heavenly scene is, Stephen saw the heavens open and Jesus standing, ready to receive this servant of his who gave his life for the cause of Jesus Christ. He was standing to receive him. Enter into the joy of the Lord and his eternal reward because he died, he persevered, he endured to the end. 
What does Stephen's life teach us? That when the Spirit of God controls us, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God controls us, transforms us, ultimately the Spirit of God draws us to see Jesus. Stephen's life was enamored with Jesus. He, he incessantly speaks against the law. This, he talks about this, this Nazarene Jesus. That's all Stephen talked about. He was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit of God always directs people to be in love with Jesus, enamored with Jesus. So that his final scene was about Jesus, welcoming him into glory. You know, what set Stephen apart was not his amazing intellect, his, his bold um, uh, type A drivenness to handle anybody in the synagogue, his ability to, to speak profoundly. What set Stephen apart is that he was in love with Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered with faith and grace, wisdom. The Apostle Paul, many times, I'm sure, looked back on that scene, remembering the face that looked like the face of an angel, glowing with the glory of, of Jesus, of hearing Stephen's defense, of hearing him say, one like the Son of Man. And it was Paul who would say to us in Ephesians 5, do not be controlled by outside stimulus. Do not be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by the news of the day. Don't be controlled by the, 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 the high inflation rates or the uh, economic woes. Don't be controlled by the rebellious teen that's living in your home. Don't be controlled by the, the, the doctor's report that is not good. But be controlled, be filled with the Spirit of God. Be controlled by Him. And you see, folks, the good news for us today is that the moment we trusted Christ as our personal Savior, every one of us, if you know Jesus as your Savior, every one of us in this room has been filled with the Spirit of God. He has taken up residence in our life. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The issue is not so much us getting more of the Holy Spirit. The issue is always the Holy Spirit getting more of us. You can't get any more of the Holy Spirit the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. You are filled to the fullness of, of, of Christ because of who's within us. The question is, is he controlling us? Man, I wish we had another hour. We could talk about that Ephesians 5 passage because it's actually written in a, in a uh, passive voice. It's to, we are to allow it to happen to us, but it's also written as an imperative he commands us, don't be controlled by anything else, but be controlled, be filled with the Spirit. Allow God to use our life for His glory. Be enamored with Jesus. Look to Him. Set aside anything that might grab our, our affections and our heart, which is idolatry, and focus on Him. This is the one to whom the Lord looks the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. This is what it means to be filled by the Spirit. 
And folks, any one of us in this room, anyone who names the name of Christ and who knows Christ as a personal Savior, is Stephen-like potential. Because it isn't about us, it's about who's within us. It's the power of the Spirit of God within us. And when that Spirit of God begins to work in our life, and we're filled with that power and that grace of God, relationships are healed. Marriages become what they are supposed to be. Parenting skills arise, and, and our children are, are shaped by godliness. Our coworkers see a different, our classmates at school see something different. When we are filled with the Spirit and allow Him to control us, it is what, what do they see? They see Jesus flowing through us. And every one of us who, has a, who names the name of Christ has that potential. Can you imagine how the world would be changed? Our world, our neighborhoods. We talk about building bridges. And we're calling people to pray, and we need to pray. We talk about how to share our faith and make sure we can clarify the gospel for people in this day and age. And we need to do that. But far more important than praying, and far more important than being clear on the gospel, far more important is that we're filled with the Spirit of God that he's transforming us into the image of Christ. And every day we're looking more like Jesus than we looked like the day before. What made Stephen a world changer? He was enamored with Jesus Christ. Jesus was his all in all. It, he, it was the vision of Jesus that drove Stephen to ultimately give his ultimate for him. What is going to make us world changers? It's the Jesus in us, and it's the role of the Holy Spirit when we allow him to control us, we'll put our focus and our gaze on him. And when that happens, Katie, bar the door, look out, because the world will be changed. Let's pray. Father, we've gone way over here, a long thing with Stephen. As we close this morning and, and sing about your, who you are and how we can gaze upon you, I pray, Father, that you will continue to stir our hearts. May we follow you wholeheartedly. May we be enamored with Jesus as Stephen was and change our world for Christ as we're being changed by him. I pray in Christ's name, amen.